Hey, you're listening to a sermon from Ketchikan Church of the Nazarene. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about our church, you can visit ktnnaz.org, visit us on Facebook, just search Ketchikan Naz, or you can download our free app from the iPhone store or the Google Play store, just search Ketchikan Naz. Thanks for visiting. Hope the Word of God speaks to you today. All right, adults, you're going to be in Daniel chapter 3. That's in the Old Testament. And uh, for some reason, I always have a problem finding Daniel. I think it's earlier in the Old Testament than it is. It never is. It's, it's on the backside of the Old Testament. Um, and so, um, he gets page 739, but uh, probably different for you. But maybe somewhere around there. Uh, but it's a good more than halfway through the Bible, uh, at least in mind. So, uh, Daniel chapter 3, get your finger there. Uh, we're going to be continuing our series, uh, School, uh, re-looking at Sunday School Stories, going a little bit deeper, learning a little bit more depth in them. Um, and today we're going to tackle uh, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or if you've seen the VeggieTales version, Rack, Shack, and Benny, right? Yeah. Yeah, I'm getting the nods. And uh, so we're excited um, to, to dive into this story a little bit. This is a story called The Fire, and it's a story about worship. Um, it may not be the spin you've heard on this, but I think as we look at Scripture, we have to look at it within context. My old Bible professor used to tell me, context, 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 and then he'd go even further, get a large wingspan, context. And the idea was you read Scripture within the context of the sentence, and then the paragraph, and then the chapter, and then uh, the book, and then the entire Bible. And we need to do that today so that we don't take just, just a small portion of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's story out of context. But then we put it within the context of their entire uh, story that we get from the book of Daniel. And so, um, in order to do that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start um, some background today. We're going to kind of just breeze through chapters 1 and 2 briefly. Um, and so we get the understanding of the context of their story. Um, like last week when we studied Samson, um, and we learned that God's people weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing. Um, surprise, another book of the Bible and another story where God's people aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. So, um, in Daniel, we find out that God's people are caught up in this ever-continuous cycle of sin that they're stuck in. And this sin led to a united people of God becoming fractured. So, what had happened was there was one people of God. God formed a nation for him, the nation of Israel, and he was really excited because they were going to love and serve and worship him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. But then sin happened over and over and over again, and eventually that nation fractured. So no longer was there one nation that worshipped God with one voice, but there was a divided nation that was um, moderately devoted to God in each of their nations. But there were two groups of people, two nations, a divided kingdom. Each had its own designated king. There was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, or Israel and Judah are the names of those two kingdoms. Our story takes place within the southern kingdom of Judah. So we've got Israel, and they're in the northern kingdom. But we're going to pay attention to the southern kingdom of Judah today. And just so that you understand um, where we are in the world, uh, this is um, the Black Sea of the Year, Caspian Sea, if you know geography. Persian Gulf, Red Sea, this is where Jerusalem area is right here. Just so you get your worldview understanding. Everything that is green is the Babylonian kingdom. Okay, we're going to be focusing on that area of the world today. Just so you know what we're talking about, uh, the Babylonian kingdom, we've been there a handful of times recently uh, when we looked at um, the Tower of Babel over here, right? Because that's been Babylon, Babylon. Um, and we are going to be right about the Babylon area, just about Babylon right here. 
Uh, we're going to be about four miles outside of Babylon in the plains of Dura today, okay? Um, and just so you know, that's where we're going to be. Um, and uh, here's what you need to know. The Lord had given the kingdom of Judah, in the half kingdom, uh, its king and its people, the Lord had given that kingdom <coughs> over to the Babylonians and its king, King Nebuchadnezzar. I'm not going to say Nebuchadnezzar a hundred times today. I'm going to say King Nezi because it's shorter and I'll stumble over it less. So just bear with me. We're going to talk about King Nezi and his kingdom. Now, when Judah fell to Babylon's siege, Babylon raided and sacked the temple of God. So Babylon came in, totally destroyed the temple of God, and took the gold and the riches and the treasures from the temple treasury and took them from God's holy place and moved them to the Babylonian temple where they worshipped many false gods and said, these things were once devoted to this god, but now they're ours, and we're going to devote them to our gods. Now, Babylonians did the same with the people of Judah as well. What they did was they went in and they took the brightest, youngest, healthiest, smartest, good-lookingest men, and they brought them to Babylon, and they said, we are going to do the same with these men that we did with the golden treasures. They were once devoted to this God and this nation over here. Now we're going to take these youths, and we're going to devote them to our kingdom and our purposes over here. So they weren't brought to the temple. They were brought to the palace to serve the king and be devoted to King Nezi and his agenda. So Babylon took the brightest, smartest, best-looking men and forcibly enrolled them into a three-year degree program in Babylon, which was designed to take youth from other nations, okay, all other nations, because they were doing this too. Well, they just kind of captured most of the known world at the time. So they took youths from all other nations, but particularly Judah now, and uh, they put them in this three-year degree program, which was designed to indoctrinate them in Babylonian culture, religious worships, their gods, the multiple languages across the nation, and Babylonian literature. So what you were doing was you were taking someone, say, all of you that have junior high boys, maybe high school students that you know of, all kids that age would come and be taken captive. They'd be forced to learn culture that is contrary to what they were raised in. They were indoctrinated so that um, they could... Um, become leaders for the Babylonian Empire and expand the territory. So this was a discipleship program for the Babylonian nation and King Nezi. Now, while they were in this boarding school, they were fed portions off the king table. So the king would feed them from the portions of his table. And it was going to be a reminder to them where their daily bread came from. Who do they serve and who do they rely upon? It's King Nezi for their food, for their education, for everything. This is a complete tearing down of who they were and a rebuilding up into a complete other person. Now, when these people graduated, they were to be some of the most educated and wise men in the nation of Babylon. They would become leaders for the empire to expand its rule and territory. So he would get a class of these that would graduate, he would conquer more territory and send them out to be the rulers and the governors and the treasurers and the wise men and the province rulers for his expanding territory. Now, in the ranks of those taken captive from Judah were four young men whose names were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And you're like, I've never heard three of those names before. Um, and there's a good reason for that. We don't often call them by their Israeli name. We don't call them by their Jewish name. We call them by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we never call Daniel by his, um, his new name. We always call him Daniel, but he got a new name 
Uh, and it's funny that we call Daniel by his Jewish name and we call Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego by their um, Babylonian names. I just think that that's weird. Needless to say, here's what their names mean in, uh, in their Jewish culture. God is my judge. Yahweh is gracious. Who is like Yahweh? And Yahweh helps me. Okay? Those are the names that they were given. Then they were taken captive, enrolled in this school, and they were given new names, right? Because their old identity was being torn down and removed, and their new identity as Babylonians was being raised. And so they were given Babylonian names. They were given new identities that did not glorify Yahweh, but glorified the false gods of Babylon. So instead their names became Aku or uh, Marduk, depending on which your translation is. He was the moon god. He was the, he was the top dog god um, in Babylon. And uh, so their names became this. Uh, Aku commands me, which uh, is very similar to God is my judge. So they're, they're getting direct opposite names here. Who is like Aku? And who is like Yahweh? And servant of Nebo, who is another one of the gods. They had a pantheon of gods to choose from. Yet amidst all of this education and renaming and all of the things that were going on, these four young men, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, determined in their hearts and minds to honor God as best they could in a hard and difficult pagan culture. They determined to live a life of worship to Yahweh and Yahweh alone, regardless of what they were going to face. So they ended up keeping dietary laws. You might be familiar with this story. The king says, I want you to eat off my plate. And they said, um, God is our daily bread. Our people received manna from God, not King Nezi. We're not going to eat from this food. We believe God will keep us healthy. Um, and God did. Off carrots and water, God kept these gentlemen healthy because they trusted him. They demonstrated this unwavering faithfulness to God in daily worship, in small things, day in and day out. And despite this countercultural approach, they were not doing what pagan culture had said they should do, um, they were seen and valued by God, God bless them. They were raised to ranks in the Babylonian culture. But the pagan king saw this. Hey, these really odd duck people who are not fully submitting to the indoctrination, which I do with all the people I bring in, they're actually doing fairly well, and they look healthy, and they're the smartest guys I've ever met. So I'm going to escalate them. God bless them, and the king gave them favor. Now, sometime after these boys graduated, they were given leadership roles, and they went out and did their leadership jobs. But the king had a dream. King Nezi had this dream, and when he woke up, he was so troubled by it, but he couldn't remember what the dream was. Anybody have a moment like that, where you wake up and you're like, that was terrifying, but I can't remember what it was, but I'm scared of it? Nezi had one of those dreams, and it was really bothering him. So he called his wise men, and he called them to him, and he said, tell me what my dream was, because I don't remember it, and tell me what it means. And the wise men are like, uh, that's kind of hard sell. Um, we can't read your mind. We don't know. And Nezi was, he was, he was quick to anger. He was a guy that was like 0 to 60 in like one second flat. And they couldn't tell him what his dream was, because they weren't in his brain. And so uh, he said, well, I've had enough of my wise people. Let's kill them all. Well, Daniel heard about this, and Daniel was one of the wise men. And he said, well, this is not so good. Now, Daniel had been given the ability by God to interpret dreams. So Daniel went with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they prayed. They said, Lord God, please, would you let us know what this dream is, so that I can interpret it for King Nebuchadnezzar. And so that's what God did. God listened to the prayers, and, uh, and um, Nebuchadnezzar was given the interpretation of the dream 
by Daniel. Now, this is the dream. Nebuchadnezzar dreamt of a statue that had many different layers. And at the end of his dream, a big old rock came and destroyed the statue. And Nebuchadnezzar was like, that's exactly what my dream was. I remember it now. I can see it in my brain. What's the meaning, Daniel? And Daniel said, well, you need to know that God is showing you that there are kingdoms. You are the Babylonian Empire. You're the head. You're made of gold. But after you, there's going to be another kingdom, the Medo-Persian kingdom. And then the Greeks are going to rise to power. And then there's going to be an iron kingdom. It's the Roman Empire. And then iron and clay mixed together. And it's not very stable. And eventually, some king is going to come along. And he will establish his kingdom. And he will reign forever and ever. And his kingdom will have no end. And Nebuchadnezzar is like, that's exactly what my dream was. And you've told me what my dream has meant. And I am so impressed with this that Daniel was promoted to oversee all of Babylon. That map that we just looked at, Daniel was second in command to the king over all of Babylon because he did what no other wise man could do. But Daniel said, listen, I, that's great. and Thank you so much, King Nezi. Uh, but I want to report Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the kingdom administration. I want to be here in the palace with you so that I can continue to advise you. And so that's what happened. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego rose to uh, power through the grace of God to help oversee provinces of the kingdom of Babylon. Daniel was the right-hand man to King Nebuchadnezzar. And that's pretty cool. That's chapters 1 through 2. Now, uh, here's that. We'll let that sit up there for a while. See, this dream that Nezi had um, is the context for chapter 3. If you don't understand how he got here, then chapter 3 doesn't make any sense. Because at the beginning of chapter 3, um, King Nebuchadnezzar was just haunted by this dream. It was just his soul was in turmoil. The very idea that his glorious reign as the king of Babylon, this expanse of territory, would come to an end. And that someone would have another kingdom after him. And that his kingdom would be more powerful than King Nezi's kingdom. He just couldn't handle that idea. So what he decided to do was to um, counteract this true and trustworthy interpretation of the dream. And he wanted to challenge the dream giver, God. And assert his authority over God's um, vision for the future. He decided to take drastic action. And he built a huge furnace four miles off of uh, Babylon on the plains of Dura and commissioned a statue to be built. Now, he had to build a furnace because the base of the statue is made from bricks and then it was an overlaid gold statue so that it smelt the metal, right? And so he needed a furnace to do that. I want to give you some information. Uh, the furnaces in these days to build a statue of this size were um, significant in size. They weren't like tiny little furnaces. They were furnaces that were shaped like a milk bottle, okay, um, kind of wide at the bottom and narrow at the top, and they were large enough that you could drive cartloads of fuel up in there and drop them off. These are massively tall furnaces to accommodate um, the kinds of things that they were building. This does not give an accurate depiction. I found a, um, a picture of, um, of an old type of furnace like this from the same era. Um, and it's, it's a little more accurate because what you'll see is the furnace is built into a, like a hill. So they basically uh, carve out a little bit of a hill and build a brick furnace all the way up. So it was built into the, the edge of the hill. I think maybe that built um, insulation into it. I'm not really sure. But um, this is an actual furnace like what they would have used. Um, so you have a, a way you can you know, bring uh, stuff up in there. And uh, there's little air holes off to the side here. Um, and, uh, and those air holes feed the fire, but also you can put the metal in and 
put the bricks in and bring them out without having to face a huge, you know, fiery hole. Okay. Um, so this is the kind of furnace that they used to make the bricks and smelt the gold for the statue. The statue that he was going to erect on the plains of Dura to say, no kingdom is going to come after me. I am the top dog. Now this statue, um, 90 feet tall is what scripture tells us, and 9 feet around, okay? 9 feet around and 90 feet tall. Um, typically when people picture this passage, they picture like a 90 foot tall statue of a man, right? Is that what you guys had in your mind? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so in reality, the statue was actually built more like a totem pole which I thought was kind of cool because I get totem poles because we live here, right? So I see that kind of thing. Um, physics, the way physics works, a 90-foot tall, 9-foot around version of a man just doesn't, it doesn't work um, to stand on its own. So what this works like is this. They built a brick, most likely, foundation that would be 20 to 30 feet of the height of this. So a huge um, uh, foundation. And then on top of that, they would build this pole, nine foot around pole, at the very top of the pole, they would put either a bust or a, a small figure of the person at the top. And if we know a totem pole culture, correct me if I'm wrong, um, but when the pole is more um, blank on the way up and the whatever's at the top, it's more focus and emphasis on what's on the top than a decorated pole all the way up. Um, and so what he's doing is, listen, um, I am emphasizing myself. There is nothing else but myself. I am the top god. I am the top king. My kingdom will rule and reign forever, is what he's saying. Now, what's interesting is in 1845 or 1890, somewhere in that range, um, there was a French archaeologist, and I don't have a picture of it because they didn't take a picture of it, I couldn't find one. But um, four miles roughly outside of Babylon, ancient Babylon, they discovered in archaeology a 45 foot by 20 foot, um, what looks to be like a base of a statue, it's just a tier, 45 feet by 20 feet with a little bit of remnants on top. And this uh, archaeologist believes it's the remnants of the base of the statue that Nebuchadnezzar built, which I think is pretty cool. So um, anyway, needless to say, for modern comparison, hard to kind of picture what this might look like. Um, this is in Berlin. Uh, this is a statue that's in Berlin. This is almost the exact specifications of the statue that Nezi would have built. Uh, roughly the platform with a 90-foot tall and a little icon on the top. Um, and then there's people down here, so you kind of get the idea of size and perspective. Um, and uh, I, that really helped me kind of put things in perspective as so I was studying this this week. Um, but, needless to say, when you're studying uh, this story in the past, this is probably the image you had in mind, right? right? So we're just going to leave that up and, and we'll roll with that for the story. So, okay, so he built this uh, glorious statue to himself. And after it was completed, he sent out mandatory invites. This wasn't like a come if you feel like it, this was a, you will be here because I'm the king, invite, and you don't say no, to everyone in his kingdom who was in leadership, the treasurers, um, the leaders of the guards, the captains, the governors, the province rulers, um, the captains of the police, I mean, you name it, if they were in leadership, they were going to be there when the invite said be there. All told, it's estimated that roughly 800 people showed up to the event on the plains of Dura, but they weren't sure why they were showing up. They just got the invite that said, come here just outside of Babylon, you'll know the location when you see it. So they show up and they see this giant statue and they go, this must be the place. And on the appointed day, they stood before this giant statue, and this picture doesn't show you, but there would have been a giant smoking furnace 
off to the side. And this is what they saw. Then and only then did King Nezi explain why they were there. So from a raised platform, I'm assuming on the hill where the furnace was built into, um, some distance from the furnace, Nezi had a little uh, seat set up for him so he could be elevated above the people. Um, and from that platform, he had heralds that would speak out um, the commands that he had. And he said, listen, music is going to play. I've got a great worship team. And when this worship team strikes up the band, um, what I want you to do is uh, kneel before this giant golden statue of me. That would make my heart happy because I'm your king and you need to worship me today. Um, and if you think that this is an optional thing, let me point out the smoking furnace to my left. Because if you don't kneel and bow, that's where you will end up. And so um, it was less of a party and more of a worship service. And this is exactly what Nebuchadnezzar says in verse 7. All the peoples, all the nations, and all the languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nezi had set up. See, he wanted everyone to know that he was the only king. His kingdom was the only kingdom. He was the only one who would be worshipped. This was an exercise of authority and fear over his people. And so the music played, and immediately, I mean air raid style, I imagine, everyone hits the ground. 800 people, flat on the ground, because they didn't want to end up in the furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar, Scripture tells us, has a history of throwing people into furnaces. Jeremiah chapter 29 tells us that Nebuchadnezzar likes to throw people who challenge him in the furnace. And he's referencing different names than Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So this was something he did. The people knew he did this. And so they knew it's a very real thing. If they didn't do what he said, they would end up in the furnace. So everybody bowed down in worship. No doubt in their mind, fear was motivating them. They would die if they didn't worship. So when all the people hit the ground, air raid style, three people stuck out like three sword thumbs. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They did not respond in fear. Worship for them was not going to be coerced by fear. It was not going to be coerced by circumstances. They had made a determined choice who and how they were going to worship, and this did not fit that worldview. Fear did not motivate their actions during their entire time of captivity, and this moment was going to be no different in their eyes or their minds or their hearts. They worshipped from love, not from fear, not from the fear of death. The love that they had within them for Yahweh compelled them to stand, because Scripture tells us that true love casts out all fear. And so in that moment, filled with the true love of Yahweh and His provision for them in their life, they had no fear of that furnace or of that king or of looking awkward in front of everybody else or losing their job. They just thought, that's not who I worship, and so I'm not going to bow down before that false god. Obviously, though, they were noticed, right? Like three standing guys in a room full of 800 kneeling guys. That's pretty obvious. And there's a group called the, Chal Cal uh, the Chaldeans, and they were... Um, they were a group of wise men, a specific breed of people, a tribe, uh, and they prided themselves on being close to authority, and you'll see that throughout Scripture and history. And they, um, they really didn't like uh, these uh, wise men that had come from Judah, and they were looking for an opportunity to get rid of them. And so when they saw these three men not bow, they ran right up to the king, and they tattletale. Who loves a tattletale? Right? Nobody. So they ran up to the king, and they tattled, and verse 8 says this, <laughs> They approached the king and maliciously accused the men. Depending on your translation, uh, you might get they spoke angry words about the men or they spoke poorly about them to the king. 
Um, the Greek gives the impression that they actually spit venom like vipers out of their mouth into the king's face. Um, they spoke sweetly to the king and they said, Oh king, you're so great. You're the best we've ever known. We love you. We bow before you. Um, but these three men, these Jews, did. Now they use the term Jew. Well, there's no need to do that. All of these people have been indoctrinated from various nations. There's no reason to point out their culture that they came from, because that was no longer who they were, but they made a point to say, these, these dirty Jews are not worshipping you. And that's exactly how it was meant to sound. That's exactly what it was supposed to sound like, because he needed to feel threatened by these Jews and the God that they worship. And this whipped the king into a fury. He demanded that these three Jews come and bow before him, and so they were brought to the king, up high on this platform where he was, and they said, um... He said, listen, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it's good to see you. I'm pretty sure that you misunderstood what I said earlier. Um, clearly there was a mistake. So here's what's going to happen. My worship team is going to play a special worship song just for you guys. Just for you. Everybody else is already They're already lost. And don't even think about them. They're not thinking about just you and me and my statue and the worship team. And when the band plays, you're going to fall right here in front of me, before me. And you're going to worship or else... You're going to go to the furnace, immediately into the furnace. And he said, in finishing his statement, what God could save you from my hand? If I choose to burn you for your disobedience, who can undo that? Nobody. I'm the king. I'm Nezi. Everybody worships me. And so in his pride, he asked a rhetorical question. Nezi wanted all nations, all peoples, all languages to worship him. Uh, but these three Jews had a passion for another god, and he just couldn't stand that. So he asserted himself as the one that was going to be worshipped, the one that can't be challenged. And if he decided someone could die, no one and nothing could do anything about that. In his mind, he acted, and no one could reverse it. So what we started as a community event, a community worship service, now became a very personal worship service, right? So they weren't in a sea of 800 people. They were positioned in sight of everybody directly in front of the king, and the challenge was not to them, but to God. Nebuchadnezzar was not challenging those three men, but he was challenging Yahweh's authority to intercede in this moment. God, are you bigger than I am? Because I am asserting my authority right now. Um, verses 16 through 18 record the wisdom and words of these men, and I want to read it for you exactly as it is written. Daniel chapter 3, verses 16 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. There's some confidence right there. If it be so, our God, who we serve, is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand too. But if not, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. I like those words. Those, uh, that's just some, that's some confidence right there in the Lord. They responded directly in line with their consistent confidence in God. Day in and day out, they've chosen to worship God, and this moment was no difference. The burden of proof for God did not lie with their words or their will. It lay completely with Yahweh. They didn't have to prove anything to anybody. Their job was simply to worship God can do as he will, and he could save us from your hand, and then you will see what kind of God he is, the God who saves. But, even if he doesn't save us, 
we're still not going to worship you because our worship cannot be demanded or coerced. We do not worship in fear. Our freely offered love and worship, even to the dead, is testimony enough of our confidence in his saving power. Okay? Your temporary fire holds no sway over us, O king, is what they said. They were very confident, even in the Old Testament, before Christ died on the cross for sins and rose again to give us new life, these three men knew that they would be saved by Yahweh whether or not they died. And I think that that is pretty darn cool. Verse 19 tells us that King Nezi's face changed. That's how it says in my version. His face changed. Which basically means he went from, this has got to be a mistake, to I'm going to kill them right now. Like, uh, instantaneous death face. Um, he ordered the fire to be made seven times hotter, which is a rhetorical way of saying to be made complete. To stoke the fire as hot as we can possibly get it. Because his anger was burning equally as hot. Now, a furnace designed to melt gold runs about 1,800 to 2,000 degrees, in case you ever wanted to melt gold. 1,800 to 2,000 degrees. For reference, cremation furnaces run 1,400 to 1,800 degrees. So a gold furnace runs hotter than a cremation furnace. Um, and um, King Nezi said, stoke it even hotter. Okay? At the danger of ruining the kiln or the furnace, we are going to make this fire as hot as possible. Then they were tied up and uh, with their clothing on them and everything, all their hats and whatever they were wearing, they were tied up with strong ropes, and the strongest captains of the guard were to take them up to the furnace. And they used the strongest guards because Nebuchadnezzar didn't want them escaping, or by any chance, some sort of weird Yahweh action, he wanted his strongest guards to be there to prevent any shenanigans from this situation, okay? Verse 22 tells us that the guards walked them up to the top of the furnace and then dropped them down into the fire. Now, if you remember what that furnace looked like, okay, they walked up the hill, and that smokestack where all the fire and smoke was coming out, it was like an open volcano. And they just pushed them right in, and they fell all the way down into the fire. Now, in the process, those guards were killed because the heat was so great, Scripture says they died instantly. Now, not to let this minor inconvenience of his worship uh, distract him from being worshipped, Nezi went back to his platform, and he decided not to think anything about this troubling situation because they were in the furnace, it was done, he could go back to enjoying his glory. And probably for quite some time, he enjoyed the fact that people were worshipping him, and he was sitting on his throne, high exalted above them, and then suddenly something caught his eye. He saw movement in the hole of the furnace down below him, and he jumped up from the throne, and he saw four men in the furnace. Not three. And they were walking around like it was no biggie to be in the fire. And Nezi described this fourth man as one who, quote, looked like a son of the gods. Meaning he knew this person to be divine, but he didn't recognize him as a Babylonian divinity. Um, some commentators will tell you, and I would believe this is what is called a theophany or a Christophany, where Christ appears in the Old Testament. I believe that this is a moment where Jesus came and was with these people in this fire. Uh, when we see in Scripture, it says, an angel of the Lord, generic angel of the Lord. When it says, the angel of the Lord, it means Jesus. And so this is one of those moments where he looked like a son of the gods because he was the son of God. 
Um, and there are these four people sitting, standing, walking, I don't know, dancing, doing something in there. And um, enough time had passed at this point, the flames had cooled to the point that King Neji could go up to that big door at the front without being killed. So we know they've been in the fire for quite some time, right? Maybe days. I don't know how long it takes to cool a furnace that hot down to a point where it won't kill you when you approach it. But King Neji goes up to the, the front door and he's shielding himself from the heat and he says, get the heck out of the fire and come here. I'm not sure what's going on. Come here so we can have a conversation. And let's be honest. You guys have gone camping before, right? You've gone to the beach and have bonfires. How long do you need to be around that fire before your clothes start to smell like fire? Like two minutes, right? Like, and then you go home and you're like, oh, I smell a campfire. And I love that smell. Some people don't like it. I love it. It's like I had a great time tonight. I smell good from the fire. It smells like man inside of me. I'm just being honest. It's a good smell. Fire, burning things. Okay? And these men came out of the fire. And scripture records that um, the, the king and his men noticed they didn't smell like fire. They didn't smell like folk. They weren't burned. They weren't in pain. Their hair and clothing wasn't singed. Verse 27 says, quote, The fire had no power over them. Right? The fire had no power over them. And now Nezi had this answer to the rhetorical question he had asked before, where he said, What kind of God could save you? Because I'm the one that's deciding to kill you. And now Nezi realized there was a God who could save. When he had decided to act, someone could reverse it. He was not the top dog. His name was Yahweh, the Lord God, the Most High King. And he was demonstrating to Nezi and all of those in attendance, there is only one God who, as Isaiah put it, I acted who can reverse it. No one else can say that but God. And God was like, okay, Nezi, if you're going to throw the gauntlet down, I'm just going to one-up because I can't. It's super easy for me. I'm just not going to let it be burned. I'm going to come hang out with them for a day or so in the fire. And we're going to have a worship service. And it's going to be fantastic. In fact, not only is this God great and faithful to his servants, but this great and faithful God inspires great faithfulness from his servants. They would rather yield their lives than abandon him, because he has never abandoned them. Um, and in, in future days, we would see a God that would rather yield his life than see us abandoned. That's the story of Christ. Now, Nezi, seeing the greatness of God, perhaps worried that he had offended this God who had such great power because he tried to kill his God, this God's beloved servants, he backpedals a little bit, and he decides, um, well, this really powerful God loves these people, so I need to make nice with these people because I need to make nice with their God. Um, I can't beat him. I might as well join him. So he declared that anyone who speaks bad about the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be ripped to shreds, torn limb from limb, because now this God, Yahweh, is the top God in Babylon. So in the course of a couple of days, Nebuchadnezzar went from exalting himself and probably Marduk, the top God at the time, as the exalted deities, to saying, nope, now we're going to knock ourselves down a level and we're going to put Yahweh at the top. Yahweh is the top God. He's the most powerful God. I have seen a mighty miracle. I can't not see it. He's the top God. Anyone who argues with that, we're going to rip in half. Ah. <laughs> the approach might not be the best. Okay, But he was a fleshly driven man who wasn't wholly devoting his life to this God. He had only just begun to see a glimpse of this God. Later on in chapter 4, um, at the very beginning of chapter 4, he, he says this. 
Nebuchadnezzar to all the peoples, all the nations, all the languages. Because, right, he wanted everyone to worship him, all the nations and languages and peoples. And so then he sends this out to all the nations, languages, and peoples. Peace be multiplied to you. Uh, God has been good to show me the signs and the wondrous things that he has done. His signs are great. His mighty, his mighty wonderful works are even greater. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. He's having a humbling moment. He's not there yet. I wouldn't say he'd come to a faith in Christ or Yahweh that had saved him yet. Give him a few chapters, then he will have a faith that is true to Yahweh. Um, and if you want to read how that comes about, it's quite interesting. Um, and, uh, and a good story. But he's a work in progress, right? Because he's seen the work of God. Here's what this boils down to. These three men demonstrated a unique in their culture, unwavering faithfulness to Yahweh in private and in public arenas. And that kind of consistent, unwavering faith directly led to a pagan king recognizing he's not God and Yahweh is. Now, whether he knew it in fullness and completeness, not quite sure at this point. But what he did know was that he was not God, and there was a God who was. So let me say it this way. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's consistent faith lived out in small and big ways before an unsaved king paved the path for that king to confess that the Lord is God. It was a process for him. It was a journey for him. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was a tipping point for this pagan king to recognize Yahweh. And I would say the same thing is true for us today. We live in a distinctly unchristlike culture. Can I get an amen? Sure. Right? And we are encouraged to, and often do, embrace the gods of this land and bow at its cultural statues. Even Christianity has espoused some things that are not true to Scripture. And yet we go along with them because cultural Christianity says X, Y, and Z is okay. But biblical Christianity would say those things are not okay. Churches are splitting over what they believe is acceptable and not acceptable. And we need to go back to Scripture and have an unwavering faith there. We live in a distinctly unchristlike land, sometimes willingly, sometimes unknowingly, and sometimes by conversion. We give in and we kneel before things we should not be able for. Things like our time, our space, our money, our comfort, our pride, our status, our fears, our relationships, our insert, whatever came to mind just now from the Holy Spirit in your own heart. And these things demand top status in our life, and so we tend to shuffle everything else around to make room for that one thing that we need to kneel at. And it might change from week to week or month to month, depending on what it is, season of life to season of life. But make no mistake, we are at war with the culture that says, bow before other things and push God aside. Or you can equally worship God and these things. You can kneel before the altar of bowl. Go to church and kneel before God, and then during the week, kneel before these things. And they can coexist. That's about where Nebuchadnezzar was. But God says very clearly there's only one God, and we are to worship Him on Sunday and every other day of the week in an unwavering way. The demand for top dog status in our life is great. And when Jesus entered uh, Jerusalem and He looked over them as He was coming down, and it says He wept for the city because um, He saw His children had a heart problem, and quote, 
They were like sheep without a shepherd, like waves tossed on the sea, believing this and then believing that, and then kneeling before this and then being coerced to believe that, or being forced to live this way. And they were constantly tossed around, and they didn't have a consistent, solid base to stand on. And that dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, the foundation, the cornerstone, the rock that was Jesus, would be the one that had the kingdom forever and it would never be shaken. And that's the one we are supposed to kneel before Jesus. We are called to live in a pagan culture today, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did so many years ago, with an unwavering faithfulness to God, yielding every aspect of our life to His service at all times, in all circumstances, and in all places. And so often, this story that we just read is told in the context of persecution, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are being persecuted for their faith, and if they don't worship the king, then they'll be thrown into the fire. And um, I almost think that that's taking it out of context, which is why I put chapters 1 and 2 in the story today, because they were not experiencing persecution in these three chapters. They were living a good life in a pagan culture, but no one was hounding them, no one was after them, their lives were not at risk, they were blessed and prospering and doing well. And so when we take this little fire section out and put it on the table and say, this looks like persecution, we're misinterpreting the context of the story. This is not primarily a story about persecution, though in that moment there is persecution. This is primarily a story about living at peace as God-fearers in a pagan culture, about demonstrating a constant and unyielding faith in the face of many idle culture. There will be moments of pressure when we do that, but this is not a story about persecution. The persecuted church right now, day in and day out, people lose their lives. They have to hide in underground churches. Persecution is heavy and hot upon them. That's not what we're experiencing. We're experiencing what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego experience. We live in a pagan land. We're prospering. We're doing well. And because of that, we have to be ever more on guard for our faith. What did we read in, in um, Sunday school this morning? We have to defend and... I forget the way it was phrased. Um, defend and... Um, I wish I had my notes with me. Contend for the faith. That's what it was. We have to contend for our faith. It's not enough that we just have salvation and be content with that and go, I'm good, I, I love God. We have to go every day, day in and day out. I need to contend for my faith, lest I fall prey to one of the idols that culture says is okay to worship. Romans 12 says it like this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. That's exactly what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did in the very literal sense. They presented their bodies as a living sacrifice. If I die, I die. If I don't, I don't. It's not up to me. I'm still going to worship God. But that moment was no different than eating the carrots in the water, which was no different than being taught all of the pagan stories and choosing not to believe them because they contradicted what they knew to be true about God and Yahweh and His provision for their life. It continues. Oh, you can't read that. I'll read it for you. You get the big context there. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God that is good and acceptable and perfect. And so here's the thing. Our life is to be lived in worship. That's what Scripture tells us. Daily submitting ourselves as a living sacrifice to God, 
choosing his will and his ways over our culture, our comfort, and our convenience. And in that, we are to be renewed by God in our heart and soul and mind and transformed. See, we cannot present ourselves as a living sacrifice except for by the mercy of God. And the mercy of God dwells on us and in us and enables us to say, no matter what culture is doing, I'm going to stay standing and I'm going to worship God in the good things and the bad things and the hard times and the easy times and the prosperous times and the lean times, when the times when pressure is hard on me. And what if it gets hard to become a Christ follower? What if it gets hard and we're put in a position like Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego? Who cares? God is big and our job is not the what ifs, but the I will worship. Okay? Who do we choose to worship in that moment? And as we allow God to work in our heart, we will be renewed and transformed so that we don't look like culture, that we don't make excuses for our behavior and our preferences, but instead we say, I will worship God and God alone. So if our time and our money and our thoughts are given in higher quantity at any point in time to anything other than God, we have knelt before a false God. If our time, our money, and our thoughts are given in any higher quantity to anything else, at any point in time in our life, we are literally doing what those 797 people did, falling and worshipping something else. So we have to make a choice, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did, to decide how much longer we will kneel before culturally accepted idols and practices. A culture does not get to define Jesus. Culture does not get to define Yahweh. Culture does not get to define the church. Culture does not get to define what we believe. God gets to define those things. And his word is very clear. There is one God. And he is very clear in his word. It says his heart is that one day every tribe, nation, tongue, people will worship him with one voice, with everyone. Me bow, right? God is making it very clear. There will be no other idols that are gathered all in all the nations and all the people and all the tribes. It is one God, and we kneel before Him. And so we need to make a choice. Will we allow culture to define us and worship idols? Or will we allow Christ to define us and we become more like Him, holy and blameless and pure? If you submit to Christ, He will renew you and transform you and enable you to stand strong in a counter-cultural Counter Christ culture. This is the promise that Romans 12 makes us. And here's the thing. It's important for your own soul to love and worship Jesus, okay? It's very important. You need to get right with Jesus if you're not right with Jesus. Meaning, if you don't know that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose again on the third day to give you everlasting life, you need to know that God loves you. Nothing you have ever done is going to separate you from God and Christ. You need to give your heart to Jesus and love and follow Him, and He will enable you to serve Him, and you will grow, and you won't be perfect at first, and you will grow, and you will be sanctified as life goes, and you will get better and better at following Jesus over time, the more time you spend with Him. But it is not enough that we are saved just so that we can say we're saved. The point of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's story is not that they could say, hey, we love God, let's move on with our life. Their faithfulness put them in a position to help lead other people to Jesus. Okay? Their faithfulness put them in a position to pave the path for someone else. It is very important for Christ followers to place Him first and be renewed daily because the way you live your life and the choices you make, and the things you refuse to kneel before, 
are going to speak volumes to the people around you about the God you serve. Right? So, it may be that the person you are thinking of right now who doesn't know Jesus, the only person they're going to understand Jesus from is you. And you may or may not actually talk to them about Jesus, but they know you claim Jesus, and the way you live your life, and the way you spend your time, and your money, and your thoughts, is going to tell them who you worship. And you have the ability to give them an accurate representation of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who died for sins and rose again. And it is vital that Christ followers determine in their heart to live a life of constant faith and sacrificial worship in the small things and the large things. And if life gets hard, because it will, we can rest knowing that faithful obedience and a life lived in sacrificial worship are the safest place to be when life gets hard, even if it puts you in the fire, because we know that that's where Jesus goes when his people are there. Scripture tells us that when it gets hard, Jesus will be with you. It says, I have walked through the fire, but I will not be burned in Scripture. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego lived to testify that, and we can as well. So let me ask you a couple questions. What have you elevated above Christ? I don't need to tell you what you've elevated above Christ. Jesus will tell you what he believes you have elevated above him. What have you submitted your time, your money, and your thoughts to that exceeds what you do with Jesus? God's word would tell you to repent of those things this morning. To submit yourself to God as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to him, because that is your spiritual act of worship. So you can come to church on Sunday morning and you can sing songs. And you can come to church on Sunday morning and you can stand and you can sit when we do. And you can come to church on Sunday morning and you can hear the word of God. But if you do not allow the word of God to get into your heart, and you do not respond to the word of God with an act of, oh, I heard God's voice and something needs to change so that I can go live a life that is more obedient to God, then you are not worshiping God when you come to church on Sunday morning. You're going through the motions and you're singing songs. You do not leave different than you came. Something has gone wrong in your relationship with God. So I ask you this morning to listen to God's voice as you pray. To listen as you worship and to be obedient to repent of those things that he is saying, they've been elevated above me and they need to go right now. Because we want to live a life that pleases God and we want to lead people to live lives that please God. And this is simply the message of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Faithful worship, day in and day out. It's good for them, and it's good for the world around them. Let's pray. Father, uh, this story is a great story, uh, but it's far deeper than I had thought it was. Uh, the very idea that this wasn't about direct persecution, but it was about the long haul. Eugene Peterson, he wrote a book, and it's a long obedience in the same direction. And I thought about that book a lot as I wrote this week. The idea that this life that we live is not just about that moment when we get saved, and then we forget about it. It's a long obedience in the same direction. And Jesus, you, you demonstrated that when you were born and you walked this long obedience of your life all the way to the cross. When you were 33 years old, you died for the sins of the world. You died for my sins. I'm 33 today and it's weird to think that this was the end point of your life. Because in a lot of ways I feel like it's the beginning point for mine. The fact that I have a long obedience ahead of me, Father. 
that I will live more years on this earth than you lived on this earth, and you're calling me to live faithfully after you, to grow in your knowledge and your wisdom day in and day out, and to continually daily say, Lord, the day set before me, how have I failed to worship you? Secure my heart, Father, in you, so that I don't worship other things, that I stand strong, that I'm able to give an answer when I'm asked to account for my faith, and that when I speak, it's not me giving the answer, but you giving the answer through me. But I want to confess the ways that I have elevated things above you. The way my pride's gotten in the way, and my time, all the time, I love my time. The ways I put my selfish desires before you at time spent with you. Lord, forgive me of that. Remove those idols from my heart. And enable me to craft my life after you. Lord, do the same for my flock this morning. So that they can hear your voice like I can hear yours now. And set aside those things that you don't want them to kneel before anymore. Not so that they can say I'm a holy Christian. But they can say I'm a beggar at the table and God's grace has been so good to me. And because of that, I can do none other but worship him fully. Lord, in these moments... We as a body refuse to worship anything other than you. We confess that we've not been perfect, but you have desired to make us so. And we submit our lives and our hearts as a living sacrifice so that from this point forward, we can be made holy for you. And if you're speaking to people this morning, Father, would you speak loudly and clearly? Because sometimes those things that are in our heart, they speak very loudly, and we like to listen you need to not be that still, quiet voice this morning, Father, but the loud voice that says, please come back. Listen to me. I love you. Drown out the other voices of culture this morning, Father. And create in us a renewed heart, a transformed heart, a renewed mind, a transformed mind, so that when we worship you this morning, we're not just singing the songs, but those are lyrics that confirm what we believe. And when we sing things that resonate with the story of standing strong in our faith and not giving up and knowing that you're with us regardless of what comes, those aren't just words that we sing and are done in the song. They're words that are a testimony about our life and our faith and what you've done for us. Grow us as we sing, Father. Encourage us as we sing. And may you change our life from this point forward. May we be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who demonstrate consistent faith before they even knew Jesus. And God, we know you, and we know you can do this in our heart. We give you all the praise for that, Father, and we ask you to make a wreck of our life right now so that we can look like you when we walk out of these doors. And it's in your name that we